The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church. Welcome uh, to all of you. My name is Gary, one of the pastors here. If I haven't dropped my phone, if I haven't met you, uh, welcome to Park Church. I struggled for a little while this week, kind of thinking about how to kind of get into this idea of rejoicing. Um, A lot of times when I'm thinking about a a sermon on any sort of theme or topic, I'm thinking, what what are the kind of cultural realities around this? Where does this already connect with people in our culture? Where's like a a starting place? And there's a lot to talk about the way rejoicing connects culturally. There's tons of literature on rejoicing and gratitude and joy and thanksgiving. You can watch TED Talks about it. You can read books about it. There are innumerable journal articles about it from philosophers and psychologists and neurologists and mental health professionals of different kinds. You can learn about the the mental health benefits of gratitude and rejoicing. You can learn about the social and physical, even the physiological benefits of lives that are related to and connected to regular rejoicing and paying attention to the goodness and actually expressing those things. We could talk about all that, and that's all relevant and, and real. We could, we could talk about it that way. Um, I don't think that that gets underneath like the, the root cause why some of us struggle to live a life rejoicing in the Lord. And so we could go straight to the Bible, to this passage right here. We could go straight to Philippians 4.4. 4. It's a command. Uh, this verb here is in the imperative form. It says rejoice in the Lord always. So go do it. And, uh, and we can walk out and be like, the Bible says it, so we're going to do it. And that's, that's great, and that's, like, true. It's an imperative, and that imperative, that command has real, like, force. You're, you're called to rejoice in the Lord always. Does that, does that get under the heart-level struggles that we have around the idea of rejoicing always? I don't, I don't know that the command gets under the heart. And so what I want to do for a second is we're going to come to that command, but I want to put that command to rejoice in kind of a worldview context. A worldview context. I want to start with this idea of, of the world in which we live and the, and the trouble for us in this world of learning to actually live with a sense of gratitude to God and to live a life that's full of rejoicing in him, even in the midst of the complexities. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor we talk about uh, often because I, I think he has some of the most insightful thoughts about the nature of life in this current cultural climate that we're living in. And so he wrote a book called A Secular, Secular Age, which is just a beefy, meaty, like overwhelm you with the sheer like weight of it. And you start reading pages of it and you're like, okay, I don't know. I don't know if I, this is going to happen. And so um, if you're anything like me, you're like, man, I wish there was somebody that could make this like more accessible for normal people. And, uh, and good for us, there is. There's a guy named Jamie Smith who basically took that big book and then boiled it down to a little book. That's like Charles Taylor for dummies. And, um, and it's called How Not to Be Secular. And he just kind of translates Charles Taylor 
for the semi-average person, which is still like kind of overwhelming and heady. And so I'm going to just do my best to kind of give you the vibe I get uh, from, from Charles Taylor in a framework that's been helpful for me to understand what it means to live in this current culture. Taylor talks a lot about this idea called the imminent frame. Imminent meaning like near, immediate, like right here. The, the, the frame of right here. And so essentially he imagines that the cultural moment in this secular world as, as a world in which we are all kind of like wired to think of life in the imminent frame. And that means to kind of uh, approach life with the perspective of only welcoming into our experience kind of most readily that which is material, or immediate or natural. And so it's like you live in a box and inside that box are things that are here and now, immediate, right? Things that are, that are material, touchable, and things that are a part of the natural order of things. And you're kind of living your life in that box. That's what's boxed into that box. What's boxed out is the ideas of transcendence, something above us, beyond us, the idea of eternality, something that just like is bigger than the scope of time. It's not that's not immediate. Stuff that's supernatural, beyond the natural order of things. And so there are times throughout history when, when humans didn't live in the imminent frame. They were actually living in a world that was enchanted, where they expected supernatural things. They approached the world as if everything is mystical and powerful and charged with supernatural potential and that all of creation, the rain and the body and fertility and life and health and prosperity and wars are connected to divinity and transcendence and eternal purposes of something outside of the imminent frame. So there are times in history when, when it was seen as the supernatural and the natural were seen together, right? The eternal and the temporal were seen together. The immaterial and the material were connected. And that's not the way we tend to think of reality now. We tend to approach life here and now inside the imminent frame. And so the way that I've thought about this in the past, the way it's kind of like settled in my mind is like, we've talked about this before, we're all like constructing our life in a cardboard box. Okay, and inside this cardboard box, our whole life is there. Our friendships are in the cardboard box. Our job is in the cardboard box. Our housing situation, our, our finances, our family of origins, our hopes and dreams are generally all conceived of within this cardboard box of the material, the temporal, the natural order of things. And we're living our life with this sense of like this longing to like get the box just right. To like, what, what would it take to get the good life just right? What, what would it take relationally? Would the good life include a marriage or not a marriage? If, if my conception of the good life would include a marriage, I'd need to get a marriage in the box. If my sense of the good life would include this particular career choice, I'm going to kind of pursue that if I can. If you get kind of down that career choice path and it's not creating the life you anticipated, maybe your schedule is not what you want it to be or the financial possibilities aren't there or the empowerment or it just doesn't do anything for you, we kind of like okay, discard that part of the box and come and try to do the career in a different part of the box. And, and, and we're kind of constantly moving around, adjusting our family and trying to get it just so and adjusting our career inside the box and trying to get it exactly what we want it to be where it taps into all of our kind of longings and plays all of our heartstrings. And then we're coming over here financially to, to this. We want to get in the right city and get the right house and make sure we get the right community. And even religion can be in the box. And we're kind of just always fiddling and trying to like upgrade or improve or maximize our life in the box. And it leads to a ton of anxiety because you also have this thing called social media, which everybody else gives you their, the best version of the box, right? Um, I said during the 9 a.m., I was like, you know, you look on Instagram and it always occurs to me, 
it's because I despise social media that I don't know what people do anymore. So I think I'm always going to be saying Instagram. And so 15, 20 years from now, when I refer to Instagram, just translate whatever is like actually <laughs> happening, right? So I've learned now there's this thing called Be Real, which is essentially the same as Instagram, but we're just saying it's real now. Um, and so, which, uh, you know, whatever, um, if, that, if that makes you feel good. Um, Sounds good. I don't want to say, man, I got to back off. All my judgmentalism just like creeps up, just creeps up. Be real is wonderful. We should all be real. Um, and so like you like, you like construct this life and, and you're looking at everybody else's Instagram life or their be real life, you know, and, and it's like, man, everybody else seems to like their family's got it. Their job's got it. Their, their house decorations have got it. Their recreational things, their travel experiences. Oh, they went there. I've never been there. Our bucket lists keep growing of all the things we want to do in the box. And as the cycles of life come, which we'll get, a, we'll get a chance to kind of linger on this for 12 weeks during Ecclesiastes, which I'm pumped about. Um, as the cycles of life go through, man, you have those moments of incredible, like, joy, where things are like in some arena of your life and feel really beautiful and good. And then, and then things like the fall season comes and things, something dies. A dream dies. A career aspiration dies. A relationship dies. A health situation comes. And like your expectations of what, what you wanted to achieve in the box begins to die. And, and then there's the winter season where it just feels like something in some arena of your life just feels dead. And it's like kind of disorienting, a little bit hard to process, and then something new emerges, and you're like, oh my gosh, that's surprising, and you like, got to try to control that, and make sure we maximize this new thing, and, and, and then after you've walked through that season enough times in different arenas of life, you have some options of, of, of what to do. You can, actually, you can actually kind of go into this kind of cynical mode of like, nothing lasts, everything's, you know, vanity, which is essentially the author of Ecclesiastes, um, which has some reality to it, right? It has some, has some reality to it. You can also like, kind of keep trying and get this anxious effort to finally build it and get there. And so all of us are kind of like navigating in the eminent frame, Christians, non-Christians alike. If you live in the sort of Western world, this is kind of the way we are operating. And even Christians in the Western world tend to just put religion in the eminent frame. Is it connecting to like, is it giving you friends and longings and assuaging different feelings and kind of tapping into this reality? And what Taylor suggests, and this is going to make sense in a moment why, hopefully, um, we'll see. Uh, What Taylor suggests that everybody in in that imminent frame is is making kind of a decision. And it's less of like a conscious, like creedal decision. It's more of like a, a vibe, you know, a feel of things. And the vibe is, is there something beyond this box that I'm willing to entertain the possibility that there's more to life than what can be achieved and accomplished in the box? And so some people say, yes, I think there is. I think actually the cracks in the box, the fact that I can't fundamentally and ultimately achieve satisfaction in the life I long for within the box might be evidence that there's something beyond the box. There might be something immaterial. There might be something supernatural. There might be something, something transcendent. There might be something eternal. And other people that have decided that, that that's not true, and whether they spiral towards hopelessness or just settle into a kind of like realism or a nihilism or maybe they settle into like just trying to keep doing what they can in life to achieve something whatever it might be we all we all kind of like settle into are we willing to entertain the idea that there might be more to life than the eminent frame or do we want to commit to building our life within that framework now what he'll say is that everybody on both sides of that in our current age 
are living, whatever they kind of settle on, that, that kind of belief system is contestable and actually contested. So even, even the most secular people that are committed to, like, there is no God, there's nothing supernatural, like the pure kind of like philosophical atheists, philosophical materialists try to build their life, there's still like this evidence in like the literature that like when you hear people like singing songs or you see poetry or hear honest reflections, even like interviews with people like Steve Jobs, like, really? Like, when I die, is it done? I got to believe there's more to this. Or a guy named Julian Barnes, a British novelist, who wrote uh, in one of his books, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Right? The idea of like, I'm trying to construct a life fully inside the eminent frame, but, but it's haunted with like echoes of the transcendent. Like, it's haunted. Like, there's maybe a sense. So even the kind of doubting atheist is, is the doubt is maybe there is more. I'm kind of committed to building a life as if there's not, but I wonder if there might be. On the other side, there's many of us in the room that you're, you've built your life saying, I want to follow Jesus to some degree or another. Or I'm at least at church on a Sunday, so I'm willing to kind of put this kind of thing in my box, you know? Um, and the temptation for us is to begin to live life as if the imminent frame is all that there is, as if it's all that there is. And so what you can experience or achieve in the box is all that there is. And it's almost like a tempted with a practical atheism, though we might say, Yes, I believe that there's an eternal. I believe that there's a transcendent. I believe that there's a creator. I believe that there's a God who sees me and knows me and cares and, and loves me. I believe that the Lord is near. We just said it in scripture. I believe it. But we live our lives as if we're just here operating in this world. And, and I want to I lay this framework for us because I think we're all, we all are in that space. And all of us struggle with doubt. All of us struggle with doubt. If somebody's projecting absolute certainty it is almost always masking deep insecurity. That's just real. And that might sting some of you, but it's real. We all struggle with doubt. We all do. And, and where you feel those things and where we operate, when we look at these, these realities of even this call to rejoice, inside that framework, we have an opportunity to see in our life here and now all of these evidences of the goodness of God, but it's hard for us because we tend to think of life only through the lens of what's in the box. And so what I want to do is actually create that framework to show, show something in, in Paul's letter to the Romans, and then we'll jump back to Philippians. Show something in Paul's letter to the Romans where he essentially taps into that basic framework to talk about a fundamental issue in the human experience. And this is from Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read it here. He's going to use a word that's for, for people that are, you know, maybe less familiar with the Bible or um, the word wrath. And this is, this is the judgment of God poured out against humanity because of our rebellion against him. It's an overwhelming idea that is very kind of like unsettling uh, for most of us in our culture, but it's a really important part of the scriptural conception of reality. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Listen to this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Paul's saying is that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, and humanity was created to experience the the nearness of God, the beauty of God, the, the attributes of God in the things that were seen. When you look at the mountains and your heart screams, glory, glory, hallelujah, it just screams. You're made to reflect that as an expression. That's God's handiwork. Right there, when you experience a loving word from a friend, an encouragement, when you hear the laughter of a child or experience intimacy or see justice or righteousness at play, when you experience rest and joy, in in these ways you're made to experience the goodness of God. It's evidenced all around us. It was designed to be so. And what Paul says is that humanity, we took the truth of God's reality, his nearness, his transcendence, his beauty, his divine attributes, his power. And like a beach ball, we try to push it under the water. It wants out so bad. It's, it wants out so bad. But we took the, the beach ball of like the truth of God's existence and nearness, and we're trying to suppress it, trying to keep it under the water as best we can. But it wants out. But this is what we're doing. And, and what Paul says is that when we're doing this, we're not honoring the creator, and we're not giving him thanks. We're living in his world, kicked him out of the imminent frame, and we're trying to make life work with all the created things. And their culture is all these gods that are kind of exhibited or personified through these creatures. In our world, it's money, it's relationships, it's power, it's career, it's perfect family, it's living in the right spot, the right experiences. We're running to creation, which existed to point us to the goodness of God, but we're running to creation as if it was the end in, in, a, in and of itself. And so we're living our life, scrambling around in the imminent frame, trying to like make something give us joy and love and satisfaction and fulfillment apart from the creator who made it as a reflection of, a taste of, a picture of his character. And so we've pushed him out. And so for those of us that call ourselves Christians, we're living in this world where we tend to think of the good things we experience and just kind of live as if like this is the way it is instead of learning to live and see these things as a taste of who God is and what he's done. And what I would contend is that your ability to rejoice is directly related to your ability to see the world as it really is. If If you could learn, if we could learn to see the world as it really is, rejoicing would erupt from us over and over and over again. You say, well, the world as it really is is also full of pain, is also full of difficulty, is also full of grief and loss, and I agree with that, which is why the ability to grieve and lament is also connected to your ability to see the world as it really is. The world is full of beauty and brokenness, and a healthy human with eyes wide open is going to see all of it and be overwhelmed at times with grief and lament and sadness and overwhelmed with joy and rejoicing and beauty and the commingling of these emotions have their place as we navigate through life in this world. And so that's the context into which Paul is making this command, rejoice in the Lord all the time. Don't you see who he is and what he's done? Don't you see, are your eyes not opened to who he is and what he's done? And he's saying that in a context in Philippians where he is writing from prison. He's in chains, 
He's writing from prison. He's writing to a community that's experiencing internal division within their own church. There's conflict within their church. There's external division with other Christians, and there's oppression and an injustice from the Roman government. They're surrounded by hardship. Paul is not sure if he's going to be released from prison or if he's going to be sentenced to death. He's awaiting a, a sentence. And so imagine your best friend gets wrongfully imprisoned. Some charge goes up against them. They might be sentenced to death and executed. And he's writing a letter to his friend saying, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Like he's standing on something that's different than his circumstances. He's standing on something that transcends his kind of immediate situation, transcends even his mortal life. And so it's a profound foundation that Paul seems to see reality differently. His eyes seem to be open to something. Something about the character of God, the redeeming love of God, the future of God's promises. And he's full of joy. The book of Philippians is full of joy. Joy is everywhere. And so I want to ask these questions as we walk through this Simple questions that aren't complicated. We'll do it pretty quickly. We're not going to look at everything in this passage. We'll talk more about the idea of what does it mean to ask God for help and mercy and grace to meet us in our needs. We'll talk more about that next week. But for now, I want to focus on this concept of rejoicing in the Lord always. So what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? What does it mean? The word rejoice is connected to the word for joy. So joy is just an experience of pleasure and delight and goodness. It's like when you experience something of pleasure and delight and goodness, what you feel is joy, right? What you feel is joy. To rejoice is to find a way to express that joy, to kind of express in some way the joy of what you've experienced, the goodness of what you've experienced. So there's a feeling of goodness, something good experience, however it comes to you, a good reality, uh, something about the character of God, something in creation, a friendship, a, a good cup of coffee, a great morning at work, a productive day, a beautiful hike in the mountains, a friendship, whatever it might be, an encouraging text from somebody. And that's like experience goodness. What you feel is a sense of delight. That's joy. And the expression of it is, is to rejoice. It's connected to the same word for, for praising and so here's something that C.S. Lewis said that I think is just thoughtful. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And what he's tapping into is the reality that when you've experienced something of goodness and you feel this kind of sense of gratitude or joy, the praise or the rejoicing that kind of follows naturally completes the joy. So I am an annoying person to watch sports with because I am like such a celebrator. I mean, I'm like a physical like person. I just want to like jump off like last night watching Messi win the league's cup, like the goal in the 23rd minute. I'm like, yes, yes. Like, ah, if Messi's running and jumping, I'm running and jumping. I'm like on the couch and moving. I like sit down in front of the TV during the PKs. Like it's annoying to like half of my household. Um, and the half changes regularly. It just depends on where everybody's at. Uh, but I'm like, oh man, if, if you want to like hang out and you're like, hey, we should watch the football game together, I want to be like, hold on. Do you want to watch the game or do you want to talk? Because <laughs> if you want to talk, let's set up a meeting. Because um, I'm going to be... <laughs> I'm going to be watching the game and like, you know, I want to hear the commentators talk. I want to hear the things. I want to watch it all. It's overwhelming. And so, you know, for... You know, back years ago, uh, when Peyton Manning was the quarterback of the Broncos, I was rejoicing in the Broncos week after week. Haven't felt that for a while, maybe this year. <laughs> you know, 
maybe this year, but I'm from Kansas City. Some of you are going to hate this. So I just have this easy shift. I'm be like, oh, watch the Chiefs, because they make me happy too. And that, that, now some of you don't like that, but it's okay. Patrick Mahomes, I rejoice in that. But when I, when I watch these things, I, I, I feel excited, but I'm also just like, I want to celebrate. I want to I do it, not just with sports. Have you tried the Hustler breakfast burrito at Bodega? Joel put me onto this breakfast burrito. It's going to change your life. They only take like 20 people at a time. It has this like hash brown in the middle, so you get this like crunch in the middle of it that's just like, what? What? It's incredible, right? So, so what, what's happening? When, when, we, when we taste something beautiful or good, or you're like, oh, I'm gluten-free, I don't do that. Okay, I had to think about this. What about for gluten-free, dairy-free people? There are Palisade peaches, okay? Like, you can eat a Palisade peach. Have you ever eaten a Palisade peach and just let the juice just, like, drizzle down? Oh, my gosh. This is incredible. So you, you have this experience, whether it's a sports game or a stadium full of people or you in your living room being wild and crazy or however you rejoice or this food you eat or a friendship or a vacation you went on and, and what you experience is goodness. That's an experience of goodness. When you attribute the goodness to something outside of you, that, that feeling is called gratitude. And I feel grateful for something outside of me for that experience of goodness. When you then express that gratitude out loud with thanksgiving, with praise, with rejoicing, you're completing the joy. Right now, I can rejoice in the Hustler Burrito, and I can attribute that to Bodega right here on 38th and Clay, and I can give glory to Bodega. This is how humans work. It's how we work. You experience goodness. You feel like, whoa, joy, gratitude. It's amazing, and you express it, and something about it magnifies the giver of the goodness. And when we express joy, when we express gratitude, when we express thanksgiving, it's completing the joy and it's also magnifying the goodness of the giver. It's honoring to the giver. And so in Romans 1, when Paul says, the evidence of God's goodness is all around us, but we didn't honor him or give thanks to him. It's like a core issue. And what Paul's saying is like, man, when you realize that God sent his son into that imminent frame to live in a visible, near way, to suffer with us and for us, to atone for our sin and our rebellion, to redeem us to the creator and to teach us that the the reason why the brokenness was here is not because he's against us. We know he's not against us. If God did not spare his own son, how would he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is for you. And the creation itself testifies to that everywhere. And the pain you experience in life is not evidence of a God who is not for you. It's evidence of a world that's been corrupted by people, by us, who turn from him. That does not mean, hear this very important nuance, that the pain you experience in life is directly connected to something you did. But you are living out your life, we'll explore this for weeks in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, east of Eden, in a world that is full of thorns and thistles and death. And that's reality. The world is beautiful and the world is broken. The beauty is evidence of a God who created everything and said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's really good. And the brokenness is evidence of a human race that said to God, we're gonna push you out, the creator and the sustainer of goodness and life and joy and love. We're gonna push you out and try to do it in the creation on our own. And then we have this temptation when when life in our box isn't going well, God must not be good. And we jump towards painful and deceptive ideas of where that brokenness comes from. 
instead of seeing the abundance of God's glory all around us. So I want to think about this idea of why it's hard to rejoice. Why is it hard? Because it is. It is. We can talk about these things, and it is hard. And one of the reasons is that for a lot of us, we tend to think of like a life of rejoicing in the realm of like this toxic positivity. And, and I, I have been in my life like always optimistic, we got this, like self-reliant, like kind of like it's going to be okay, until like that, that train like went off the tracks in my own life. The despair I felt internally, the brokenness, the shame, the inadequacy, the fear, the insecurities, the anxiety I carried with me in my kind of like attempt to try to like, everything's going to be great, it's all going to be awesome, trust me. Like man, that, that train went off the rails hard in my own life. And I had to learn about what does it mean to be honest about weakness, be honest about loss, be honest about grief, be honest about pain, be honest about shame. And in, in our life, in this world, we, we tend to be people that can maybe gravitate towards, I want to be real and I want to be honest, or I want to be optimistic, I want to be happy. And learning to like live a life where both exist is a path. It's a journey. But mature humans with eyes wide awake are learning to see the beauty and the brokenness beauty and the brokenness. The, the, the trouble is, for, for many of us, as we navigate through this life, even looking at Paul in the midst of incredible hardship, who's really honest about the hardship he's faced, he's able to hold that grief and that pain right there next to the joy in a way that's really beautiful, where he doesn't get jaded and frustrated. So why, why is it hard to rejoice? I, th- I think one of the reasons is because of this sort of practical atheism, that we kind of like live life forgetting that all the good things you experience on any given day are evidences of God's goodness and love for you? What if like that sweet conversation or the good day at work or the beautiful sunrise or the hike in the mountains or that cup of coffee or the hustler burrito or whatever it was, that Palisade peach, what if it reminded you that there's a God and he loves me? He loves me. We tend to want kind of everything to go well and so we have this sense of almost like entitlement. I think of entitlement, I think of Dudley Dursley from Harry Potter. Come on, this so. Harry Potter number one, first scene pretty much. It's Dudley's birthday. Comes down the stairs for his birthday. Mom closes his eyes, walks him into the living room. Living room's full of gifts. And he says, how many are there? And they're like, it's like 36, Mr. Dursley says. I counted on myself. (laughs) It's like 36, last year there were 37. And, and they're like, well, some of them are a lot bigger than last year. And he's like, oh, I don't care. And then the mom's like, okay, we'll take you out. And we're going to get two more presents. And like, that's what I think, this is, I'm going to sting you a little bit. I'm going to say something else, a little prickly. When we're kind of like, God must not be good because everything didn't go my way. In a world that's east of Eden, that's broken and cursed, of course everything's not going to go your way. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. He gives really clear expectations. In this world, trouble. But don't be despairing because I've overcome it. Not I've rescued you out of it. I've overcome it. I'm redeeming it. I'm restoring it. I'm doing something new, something fresh. And so we live this life. Again, I'm going to push the prickly one step further. It's going to say something really pejorative and give me grace in it. I think it, it. I want it to be prickly. Sometimes we, we sound like bratty little kids that are just complaining to the God who created everything good as if he didn't do enough because it didn't make everything perfect. And the reality is he did make everything perfect. 
we turn from him and introduced into the world chaos, brokenness, hatred, comparison, envy, greed, injustice, corruption, and into that world, all these things that bring pain, and then we brought into that world in that place of separation the, the curse of sin, which is when we're separated from the God who gives life, we're now going to experience separation from him, that death. And, and this world is full of the evidences of that reality. And we don't want to deny those things. We actually want to look at all of them and look at the person of Jesus who entered into that broken space, who didn't kick us to the curb and say, good luck doing it on your own, separated from the source of life. You disconnected yourself from the life, life source. See how that works out for you. He pursued us with his mercy and his love. He entered into the world. He suffered in it. He was betrayed by friends. He suffered physically. He suffered persecution. He suffered injustice. He suffered wrongful imprisonment. He suffered a catastrophic and devastating death. And he did it all to redeem us from it, to rescue us. And so we live in a world that's not just full of creational evidence of God's goodness all around us, but it's also evidence of the redeeming love of God who sees us even in our pain and moves towards us with compassion. And so when you wake up to these things, what what else is there but rejoicing? Should you grieve? Should you weep? 100%. I've learned to weep. I'm a weeper big time now. I I think I've shared. There's times where we're watching movies and just any pain in the life of a child kills me because of like all the stuff I did not process in my own life. And so every time there's pain in the life, I'm learning to process it. And I remember we were watching like you know, finding Dory or something like that. And like, I'm weeping, weeping in the theater. And my wife's like, do you think it's always going to be like this? And I'm like, I hope not. But I think this is the path forward. She's like learning to feel, learning to weep. I'm still learning. I'm still learning and we're learning. We get to learn together. But can we learn together to rejoice in the goodness of God? He's so good. He's so good. When we can do that, we live in a, a world that's full, so full of beauty and abundance all around us. And so we get to live into that. There's a guy named Ronald Rollheiser who says this. He says, the first exercise we must do to restore our contemplative faculty, our, our ability to see God and commune with him in the ordinary life, is to, uh, uh, sorry, the contemplative faculty to its full powers is to work at receiving everything, life, health, Others around us, love, friendship, food, drink, sexuality, beauty, as gift. Becoming a more grateful person is the first and the most important step that there is in overcoming the practical atheism that besets our everyday lives. To the extent that we take life for granted, we will never see the giver behind the gifts. So how can we learn? How can we learn to do this? How can we learn to experience life as a gift? It's through the practice of rejoicing. Paul commands it. It says rejoice all the time. They had daily prayer rituals of reflecting on the Psalms to see the character of God and the goodness of God, reflecting on who Jesus is and reminding each other what they had done, admonishing each other with Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in their hearts, making melody to God. This is like a normal practice of their life. They had festivals, corporate festivals to remember together the goodness of God. So what does it look like to, to saturate our days with exercises to just slow down and reflect. Where have you experienced the goodness of God? Where have you experienced goodness? Just goodness. Who, you, who are you going to attribute that goodness to? 
And so I received an encouraging note from a friend. Well, you can attribute that goodness to that friend, but let your eyes move through that friend to the God that they are imaging. There's a God who saw you and cared about you and gave you a gesture of his love through one of his image bearers. When you go on a hike and you see the glory of the mountains or you get out in the mountains and you see the stars that fill the sky when you get away from the city lights, man, what must God be like? When you hear the laughter of a child, when you feel your own sin and brokenness and you bring confession and all of a sudden you're washed with a sense of like he still forgives me and he still loves me, what kind of love is this? That he would call me his child? What does it mean to take time to reflect on these things? We want to grow as a people that do, because when we do, when we lean into it, it begins to bring healing into our life, because you get to live even through the hardship with evidence of God's love all around you. The evidence that God loves you is all around you. It's all around you. May God help us to be people who see that reality and learn to rejoice in who he is and what he's done. We're going to take a moment and celebrate that um, together in a corporate way. And then we're going to give a moment for us to reflect in our own lives of where we've seen the goodness of God in our life and in our story and to give him glory for it. And so I'm going to have Kira come up on stage. Kira Lang's going to walk us through just a corporate practice of rejoicing. I mentioned a second ago that I'm like a jump around in the house kind of person. I grew up in a church where like, uh, you know, rejoicing was like, Praise God from whom all blessed. It was beautiful singing, but like my body was like, you know, and then so finally I went to a charismatic church where I could be like, yeah, jumping up and down, just not feel like a psycho. And so, um, so we're all different in this room. Like Park's a little more on the mellow side and, uh, and that's okay. That's okay. Some of us can learn to stretch a little bit, but who you are, your personality is okay. You don't have to be somebody else. Be yourself. What we're going to do is walk through this. I want to encourage you to like really engage your heart, even through a liturgy, and then we'll have some time to share individually, um, just rejoicing in God's goodness to all of us. And so Kira will walk us through this corporate confession of God's goodness. So we're going to ask you guys to stand if you're able, um, just to remind our brains to engage. And I'd also encourage you to hold an image of, in your head of the things that we're going to be giving thanks for. Um, and then I also kind of wanted to go over, we have it structured as a call and response in order to link us to each other. And then also because this historical structure of liturgical call and response helps us link ourselves to our past and our history. Um, so will you join me in the response portion of these rejoicings? For the color, climate, mountains, and meadows of our state, all declaring the handiwork of God for the rain this summer and the opportunity to see the bounty of flowers and plants in our backyards and neighborhoods. We rejoice in God's delight and beauty. For the many groups at Park Church that focus on loving and sharing the gospel with their communities, for the numerous volunteer leaders at Park Kids, Park students, and Park College who enthusiastically give to the next generation, bearing the image of God and love. For the 16 people this spring who joined Alpha, a safe space to discuss what it means to follow Jesus, wherein two made decisions to follow him. For the gospel communities and individuals who supported Alpha through providing meals and more, we rejoice in God's pursuit of people he loves through our community. Because after many years of prayer, 
and faithful work. Last Sunday, the Bartol family celebrated their first gathering of the long-dreamt church plant in Olmush in the Czech Republic, the only country in Europe where the majority of people identify as non-religious. We rejoice in God's pursuit of people he loves through missionaries abroad. Because a member of our congregation who came to know Jesus several years ago has now had the opportunity and support systems to walk with his brother as his brother turned from drug addiction, causing a chain reaction of healing in their family. We rejoice in God's rescuing love, both for this family and for each of us who are in Christ. Thanks be to God. Can we celebrate those things together one more time? Um, you can all have a seat right now. What, what I want to do, these are stories that we want to share and we want to rejoice in them together. And we want to grow as a community that rejoices. What we're going to do now, there are innumerable stories around this room, uh, all around this room, of things that God has done in your life. And so I'm going to put a few questions up on the screen to help guide you in just a moment of reflection, okay? Uh, so we can put the three questions up there and it's, What's something you appreciate about God's character? Maybe it's his faithfulness to you or his kindness, his patience, his justice, whatever it might be, his humility. What's something God has provided for you? Something you experience in your life that you can reflect and say, man, this is a provision of God. What a gift. What a gift the giver has given. What's something he's done for you? Maybe it's connected to your redemption, your salvation, deliverance from something, freedom, growth, transformation in your life that you've seen and tasted. And and so for the introverts in the room, we're going, to give a, we're going to give a minute. I'm going to give you a minute to even just calm your heart because what we want to do is we want to complete the joy. I want to ask you after we've taken a minute to reflect, we're just going to turn to groups of two to four and just share one of those things. Just something in that framework. Like, man, God's faithfulness. I'm so grateful. I rejoice, Jesus, in your faithfulness to me. Or it can be something he's provided. I'm just so grateful for my friends or my small group or the job he provided or whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, and when it, you can keep it simple. It doesn't have to be profound. You don't have to like spend your whole minute thinking, how do I want to say this to sound really clever and theological? Um, we're rejoicing. We're just saying, we're taking the goodness we've experienced from God. We're letting our heart linger on it to feel like, man, that's from God. I feel grateful. And we're completing it by just rejoicing, praising him to one another. This is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. God gets glory, and it's actually healthy for you to become the kind of people that can just name the goodness of God in your life. And so we're going to take a minute to reflect on these questions uh, in your own heart, and then we're going to turn and take about a minute or two just to share them in groups of two to four and just say, God, I'm rejoicing. Pray together, God, I'm rejoicing in this thing that you are, something about who you are or what you've done. So let's take one moment here uh, to reflect and then, we'll, uh, and then we'll turn to one another and rejoice in God's goodness. Jesus, we give thanks to you even here and now. All around this room are the rumblings of people that have experienced your goodness, who have experienced your glory, who have experienced your love, who have experienced your faithfulness, 
who have experienced your mercy, who have experienced your power, who have experienced your compassion. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. And so we give, you th- and we give you glory. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done in our lives, in the history of this world, and what you've promised you will do. Thanks for being a God who can receive us in all of the complexities of our life, but also a God who has promised that all the good things we taste are pointers to you, to who you are in the kingdom you're building. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Can we celebrate the goodness of God together? Evidence all around us. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.